About 25 years ago, Lan and I lived in Wilmington, North Carolina, where I served as pastor of my first church. It was a small, financially fragile congregation. The church was only about 20 years old, and I was the 20th pastor. Many of the pastors, not six months at a time. It was a difficult situation. Salary, each week, I would meet with the clerk, and he would collect the offerings, subtract all the bills, and see what he could do, you know, and it was kind of, Here, here's a little bit of money, or hey, there's, there's nothing today. In fact, Lan and I have joked often that for our time there, we, we pretty much paid the church to allow us to, to pastor. So we moved to Jacksonville, North Carolina, which was about an hour or so away from Wilmington, and we commuted back and forth on the weekends because both of us had jobs outside of the church. And Lan and I worked hard, and the church began to see some growth. So much so, we decided to double the monthly loan payment on the church. The church owed, you know, I don't know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, something like that. When we got there, so we decided, hey, let's let's double this loan payment and try to get the debt of the church and property paid off as early as possible. Adjacent to the church property was a home. Weeds had grown up around it over the years. The paint was peeling. The fence was falling apart. I didn't pay much attention to the house other than I wish whoever lives in it will at least mow the grass because it just looks so terrible and it was basically attached to our church. What I didn't know was that an older gentleman unable to take care of his home or yard lived alone in the house and he eventually passed away uh, and deeded his property to his daughter who lived in another state. She contacted me by phone and uh, it took a while to kind of get my number because I didn't have any kind of relationship with her. And she asked me if we were interested in purchasing the house and property. Of course, with the low income of the church, purchasing a house and property was nearly impossible. There's no way we could do it. Except I remembered we doubled the mortgage of the church and property. So I checked to see how many more months we had to pay. Only three more payments remained. So I asked the daughter, I said, how many, how much does the family want for the house and property? And she said, well, you know, we don't have any use for it. I live in a different state. I have my own business. This is my father's house. And I just want to make sure it goes to some, you know, to someone good who could use it or something. So we'll sell you the house, the property, everything for $40,000. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I then asked when the property would be available. She said, three months. The same month that we would pay our final installment on our property and, and church and we would be debt-free. So I called the bank and I checked on an estimated payment for the house if we purchased the house and property, and it was less than what we were currently paying in our doubled mortgage. Plus, because the house was on the market for so little, we could borrow well above the asking amount. We could then repair the house, remodel the house, and have a nearly new house for a parsonage that the church could finally own and we would actually have a place to live. And we wouldn't pay anything extra than what we were already paying. So that's exactly what we did. We completely remodeled the house inside and out. We moved our family into it a few months later. Now, I tell you that story because looking back at that 25 years ago, I should have written those details down immediately. Like I should have sat down and I should have typed all that out. I should have written it out. I should have put it in a journal somewhere. I should have tucked it in my Bible somewhere. We didn't have phones at that time, so everything was handwritten or, or typed on a computer. I should have filed it. I, I should have recorded it. 
and every so often referred back to it again and just remembered how God orchestrated the calendar and the times and the payments and worked everything. I should have seared that into my mind and heart. And you say, why? Because in the following years, I would need to remember how God comes through in the most unusual ways. Here's, here's what I know. Every challenge, every battle, every mountain, every struggle, or every obstacle is not there so we can simply overcome, win, conquer, or defeat. But each is there to also prepare us for the next one, which most of the time is larger, more complex, and poses a greater threat than any coming before it. You see, there are battles, and I want you to listen to me as intensely as you can today. There are battles in your future more vicious than the one you are currently facing. There are mountains steeper, there are enemies more powerful, and there are monsters scarier. And it will take a person stronger, wiser, more skilled, and more committed than you are right now to overcome. And the current battle you are facing is provided to train you, teach you, show you how you can overcome so that you are ready for what comes tomorrow. You see, some of us never accomplished much because we've never defeated little. And some of us have never defeated much because we've never accomplished little. Every difficult situation is an opportunity to not only overcome the situation in front of us, but to learn, grow, and develop into the man or the woman required to overcome much greater situations in our future. But we miss it. We miss it. We don't see little challenges as big opportunities. For instance, some of us can't defeat the big obstacles in life like success because we can't defeat the small obstacles in life like an alarm clock. We don't collect respect from the masses because we don't give respect to the maid. We're unable to reach our financial goal of $250,000 because we're unable to be wise and generous with $250. Zechariah 4.10, I love this verse, do not despise, do not despise, I'm going to click it and it's going to work. <laughs> there we go. Do not despise small beginnings. Do not despise small beginnings. We must pay attention to every miracle, every victory, and every moment, no matter how small, how insignificant, or how minor. Why? Because each is an opportunity to learn, grow, and be prepared for what is next. So I want us this morning to go to a well-known story in Mark 6, and you're going to see where we get this title, and you're going to notice a few words that Mark uses that really sets up the lesson that I want us to learn today. This is found in Mark 6. You, if you grew up in church, especially in children's church or in like vacation Bible school, they would often refer to this story. It is the miraculous story of multiplying the bread and fish. 
In fact, a few weeks ago, Lana stood here on the stage. She brought up bread and fish and told the story of how God miraculously multiplied it and fed the thousands. So many of you are familiar with the story. I'm not going to get lost in the details of the story because I just want you to see one part of this story this week and next week. And we're going to glean what we can, some truth here. And hopefully it will be applied to your life in a way that will just open your eyes, open your heart. You'll see things so much differently than you see them right now. Let me set the story up for you and then we'll get to the little piece of the story that I want you to pay very careful attention to. After listening to Jesus teach for hours, thousands of people were hungry. They didn't bring their lunch with them. They probably didn't think, you know, that they would be with Jesus that long, but no doubt they got lost in his teachings and were hanging on to every word and hours passed into the afternoon, into the early evening, and they were famished. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we've got thousands of people here who are hungry. They are tired. I think you should just dismiss the crowd, send them home so they can go home and find their own food. And Jesus realizes this is an incredible opportunity to teach the disciples some spiritual lessons and some spiritual truth. So he looks at them and he says, don't send them home. You give them something to eat. And the disciples are thinking, you want us to give them something to eat? We, we don't have enough food to feed all these people. Well, do what you can, Jesus says. So they begin to collect some bread and fish and find this little boy who has five loaves of bread and two fish. And they take what he gives them, they give it to Jesus. And he does what's amazing. He takes the bread, he breaks it, he blesses it, and they begin to pass it out. And all of a sudden, the bread and the fish are multiplied. And Scripture says that 5,000 men plus women and children, probably 15,000, nearly 20,000 people, are fed. It's a miracle. It's an amazing story. It's an incredible story. But there's something tucked away in this story that we often read and we don't really see the significance of it. And I want you to see it this morning. So I'm going to point this out. This is found in verse 43. This is after the miracle. This is after the bread and fish are multiplied and the thousands of people are fed. Here's what verse 43 says. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. See, we often read that and just kind of move on. But that's there for a reason. We are told that after all the bread and fish had been passed out, there was plenty of bread and fish left over, so much so that it filled up 12 baskets full. That's not coincidental. There are 12 disciples. There are 12 baskets of bread and fish, one for each disciple. That's a lot of leftovers when you think about it. Now, why would the author mention leftovers? I mean, why not just leave that detail out? Could have easily said that Jesus multiplied the bread and fish and everyone ate and they were all happy and it was a miracle and go on. Why, why would the author make sure that the reader sees that there are 12, not 10, not 13, 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish? I don't know, Scott. I mean, probably to show that when God meets a need, he goes above and beyond. Oh, I like that. That's good. I'll file that away and use that one day because that's good stuff. When God meets a need, he goes above and beyond, absolutely. But I, I think there's more to the story and more to that verse than just that he meets above and beyond. Well, I don't know, maybe the author's just kind of spitting facts. You know, he's just simply saying there was leftover food. Yeah, it's kind of boring. In fact, I think everything in Scripture is there for a reason because there are many details of all kinds of stories left out. So it must be there for a reason. The author wants us to see that there were leftovers there. Why? Here's what I see when I read that story. 
The leftovers are mentioned because leftovers matter. You see, when I say leftovers matter, I don't mean the bread and fish matter. Sure, they matter. I'm sure that eventually the bread and fish were all consumed. They were eaten. The disciples ate the bread and fish. But in this particular story, the bread and fish represents something much bigger than just bread and fish. Wasn't leftover proof that when you think God can't and you think God won't and you think God doesn't, you can simply pull out your leftovers and say, yeah, but that one time God did. You see, we need to pay attention and make note and record every leftover in our life because leftovers are given to us for a reason. Here's a flashlight. Now, typically, this flashlight sits in my kitchen drawer collecting a little dust, rarely ever used. Now, it's, it's not rarely used because it doesn't work. It works fine. You can see some light as I shine it in your eyes and wake some of you up, right? But the reason it sits in my drawer unused is because I rarely need it. It sits in my drawer because I flip the kitchen light on, it works. I flip the living room light on, it works. We have power at our house 99.9% of the time. But if a storm comes through and the power goes out, one of the first questions somebody in my house asks is, where are the flashlights? Suddenly, what was stuffed in a drawer and thought unimportant becomes crucial. When the power goes out in the nighttime, the most important item in the house at that moment is a flashlight. Some of you are connecting the dots. You will experience many dark moments in your life. Many challenging storms will come your way. Many giants bigger and more dangerous than you can imagine. And you better pay attention to which drawer you put that flashlight in. You're going to face situations in life and you're going to be famished. You're going to be hungry. You're going to wonder when God's going to come through. You're going to wonder where he is. Your spiritual stomach is going to growl. Your emotional stomach is going to growl. You are going to be hungry. You are going to need sustenance. And you had better remember where you put the leftovers. Because you're going to need them. There's giants that you're going to face. That are so much bigger. So much more vicious. So much more powerful than you can ever imagine. You better be ready. When they come. 1 Samuel 17. Let me set this story up for you. The Philistines. If you know anything about Israel in the Old Testament, you know the Philistines were always popping up here and there, and they were the enemies of Israel. They were the enemies of God, and they confronted the Israelites in the valley of Elah. And the Philistines were brutal. Man, they hated Israel. They wanted to destroy King Saul, and they wanted to destroy his entire army. So the Philistines brought their most feared secret weapon, Goliath. Goliath was a vicious warrior standing nearly nine feet tall. He was powerful. He was strong. He was skilled in battle. And every single morning, the Philistines mocked Israel by sending Goliath out to bait the Israelites. He would walk out every morning. He would look at the Israelite army and he would say, okay, anybody want to fight me today? Come on. 
Send out your best warrior. Here's the deal. If you kill me, we all will be your slaves. But if I kill your best warrior, you will be our slaves. Anybody willing to take me on? Day after day, Goliath sneered and taunted and made fun of King Saul and Israel. And nobody dared step out. They were all scared. But one day, David, a young man with a lot of leftovers, got tired of Goliath's jeering. And he stepped out to fight. This is found in 1 Samuel 17, beginning at verse 32. David says, don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine. There's no way you're going to fight him and win. You're just a boy. He's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. Now listen, watch the leftovers. Here's how they kind of come to the top. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. And when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. Now listen to these words. I have done this to both lions and bears and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Do you see that? God has performed miracles in my life before, and I remember them, and not only has he done it in my past, he will do it in my future. The story says, finally, Saul consented. All right, go ahead, he said. May the Lord be with you. And most of you know the rest of the story. David ran to meet Goliath. He pulled out a stone. He put it in his sling. He slung it around and sunk it into the forehead of that giant. And down the giant fell. And David walked over to Goliath, pulled a sword out of Goliath's sheath, and cut his head off. You know what inspired David? Leftovers. Leftovers. For years, I took care of sheep and goats, and God was with me in those small moments. And then one day, a lion came, and God was with me with the lion. And then a bear came, and God was with me with the bear. So if I was able to take care of sheep and goats, and I'm able to take care of a lion, and I'm able to take care of a bear, I will take care of this Philistine giant. What God accomplished in David's past served as evidence of what God would do to David's future. Now, back to our story in Mark 6. The leftover bread served as a tangible reminder to these disciples that Jesus intervened in a moment when they didn't think he would come through. In a moment where thousands of people were hungry and they wanted to send the people home. No, Jesus said, you give them something to eat. I want to show you something. I want to teach you something, guys. I want you to realize that no matter how desperate the situation, no matter how difficult it is, I can come through and I will come through. And he did come through. That's what the bread and fish symbolized. The leftovers reminded the disciples God knew where they were, what they needed, and he would always affect the outcome. Now, let's make it personal, okay? Let's take it out of the bread and fish. Let's take it out of the giants. Let's take it out of all of that stuff, and let's bring it down to where we live. Because, see, here's how I know the leftover bread and fish mattered 
to Jesus. Here's how I know the leftover bread and fish mattered to the disciples. As soon as they got finished feeding the thousands of people, and Jesus must have instructed them to go around and pick up the leftovers, and they began to collect all the extra bread and fish, and they filled up one basket, and then they filled up a second basket, and they filled up a third basket, and they filled up a fourth basket, and they just kept picking up bread and fish until they filled up 12 basketfuls, a basket for this disciple, a basket for that disciple, a basket for every one of the disciples. They must have taken all that bread and fish and put it in a boat. Because verse 45 of Mark 6 says immediately after that miracle, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethesda while he sent the people home. After telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Late that night. The disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake. Now just stop. A few hours earlier, they were with Jesus in the middle of a crowd of people who were hungry. And Jesus performed a miracle while he was with them on land with a bunch of hungry people. Now, a few hours later, they are by themselves on water, and Jesus is nowhere to be seen. But you know what they have with them? Leftovers. Say, why does that matter? You'll see. Late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. They're separated. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. He intended to go past them, but when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking it was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him. Folks, in these disciples' lives, things have gotten worse as the day rolled on. A few hours earlier, they were hungry on land with a bunch of people, and Jesus was in their midst. A few hours later, it is nighttime. They're in a boat. The storm is raging around them. They are fearing for their lives, and they can't find Jesus anywhere. And all of a sudden, their worst fear was realized a ghost is walking on the water. Can it get any worse? So what happens? Let's go back story. Peter calls to him while they're on the boat. Storm is raging. Jesus is walking. They realize it's not a ghost. They realize it's Jesus. What does Peter do? Peter calls out to Jesus and says, Jesus, if that's you, bid me come to you. And Jesus says, come on. I want to show you something amazing. So Peter throws his leg over the side of the boat, stands up on the water and walks to Jesus. And then his eyes shift to the seas and the, the winds and he gets scared and he begins to sink. Many of you know the story. And Jesus reaches down and picks him up and puts him back on top of the water. And together they walk back to the boat. And then Jesus gets in the boat. Now watch this. This is so incredible. When Jesus gets in the boat, the wind stops, the sea calms, and here's how they respond. They were totally amazed, watch this, for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. What do the loaves have to do with the storm? 
everything. What does multiplying bread and fish have to do with calming the storm? Everything. They didn't see the significance of the multiplied bread and fish because their hearts were too hard to take it in. They forgot the miracle Jesus just performed hours earlier. That's like us. God does something miraculous in our life. God does something amazing in our life. God does something to set us free, move us in a positive direction, heal us, break through to us. We forget it. The next time we get in a bind, the next time we get in a tough situation, where's God? The next time things do not go our way, where is he? Does he not care? The next time things doesn't go our way, we get into a sub-situation, we forget the leftovers. Folks, they, they might have stuffed those leftovers in baskets and put them into the storage area of the boat, but they missed the significance of it all because their hearts were too hard to take it in. Listen to me very carefully, okay? There are leftovers everywhere if we'll just pay attention. But we miss them. We are not trained to see them. We're not trained to their significance, and we miss them. Do you realize that some of us right now are surrounded by answered prayers, but we don't see them? There are some of us sitting in this room right now. You are living, swimming, sitting in answered prayers that you prayed years ago, but you've missed it. You forgot it. Some of you were in tough, tough, tough relationships. How many times in the middle of that relationship did you pray, God, get me out of this. God, help me. You're out of it. Do you remember the prayer you prayed? Some of you were in situations and you didn't think God was ever going to come through. And he did. Some of you thought you were going to die. You didn't. You're here. You've already survived your worst days. You've made it through the battles you thought were going to take you out. They didn't take you out. You're still here. You're still breathing. We miss them. We miss the miracles around us. We miss the bread and fish all around us. And then when we get in the next storm, we wonder where God is again. Leftovers everywhere. Can I tell you another story? I am anyway. Second Kings 6. The prophet Elisha is faced with a problem. The king of Syria wants to destroy Israel. The Israelites are always getting in messes. Just read the Old Testament. They have enemies everywhere. Now it's the king of Syria. He wants to destroy Israel. The Israelites are afraid. But there's a man by the name of Elisha who is a prophet, and he can see what all the other people around him can't see. One of the prayers I have for you is that God will open your eyes that you might see the miracles all around you. That your eyes will be open and you might see the leftovers everywhere. So that no matter what you're going through, you will be encouraged and your hearts will be lifted and your spirits will be invigorated and you will be able to see the hand of God in places that right now you can't see the hand of God. Anyway, Elisha could see what others couldn't see. Dr. Heather Thompson Day in her book, It's Not Your Turn, reminded me of this. I read this a few weeks ago and I thought this is so beautiful. 
she puts together just this list in her book about how Elisha could see things that other people couldn't see. For instance, in 2 Kings 3, Elisha sees God bring water in a desert. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha sees God fill empty jars with oil. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha sees God bring a baby through a barren woman. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha sees God bring life back to a dead boy. So Elisha has seen many things in his life. So when he is facing the Syrian army who is bent on destroying the people of God, Elisha's eyes have been trained and Elisha can see what other people cannot see. 2 Kings 6, 16, 17, Elisha is speaking and he says, don't be afraid for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. I, I, I seriously believe if God could open your eyes right now and you could see what God is doing in your life, you could see miracles that are being performed you could see different things that are happening you would be amazed you would be blown away by the intervention of God in your life but see we just think well it was I just happened to have this conversation with someone who really encouraged me you just happened to huh I just happened to read this one phrase in this book that just so encouraged me you just happened to I just happened to show up on a Sunday morning and a message just really hit me right where I live. I'm so glad I went. I was so lucky. Lucky, huh? We don't see it. We don't see that we meet people at just the right time. We don't see that opportunities come our way at just the right time. We don't realize that there are things happening behind the scenes that we can't see. God, open our eyes that we might see what other people cannot see. So here's my question to you. What do you see others cannot? What do you see that others cannot see? Leftovers are provided everywhere. Leftovers are everywhere, and they're provided that we might pick them up and keep them because there are greater obstacles in our future than we've ever experienced in our past. And guess what? If there are greater obstacles in our future than we've ever experienced in our past, there are greater miracles in our future than we've ever experienced in our past. But you got to look for them. You got to gather them. And you got to use them. I've tried my best anymore to just start paying attention to every single thing that happens in my life. And when I am discouraged, I go back and get those and bring them up. I put them down, put them on a phone, put them in a notebook, put them in a journal, put them in my Bible, put them somewhere. So that when you are discouraged and everything around you seems dark and you can't seem to find your way out, you just pull up the leftovers. Can you imagine what would have happened in the middle of that night storm when the disciples were on the boat and the boat was tossing to and fro and the wind was blowing if one of those disciples would have not grabbed a basket full of bread and fish and said, wait a minute. Don't you guys remember it was just earlier today when he multiplied the bread and fish? He came through. Guess what? He's going to come through for us. I don't know how. I don't know when, but he's going to do it. You know, I, I began this message Recalling the story of, of Lan and me paying off the mortgage in Wilmington. 
on how the house, you know, next to the church came available at the same time we paid the church off. And I look back at it all and I see how God orchestrated us paying the loan off early because at the exact same month we paid the last payment on the building, the house became available. And that wasn't all accidental. That wasn't just lucky. There was the intervention of God in the middle of all that. And if you remember, I said I should have written it down. Why? Because in the years following, I, I would need a reminder. Here's what I mean. Shortly after we purchased the house next to the church, we moved into it. It became the parsonage not only for me, but for future pastors following me. But eventually it came time for us to move on. So we moved to Kinston, North Carolina, and served at Tanglewood Church. And about three years into that time, we were associate pastors there, and we knew it was time for us to, to move on from there. Our time had kind of come to the end, and we didn't know how to get started we didn't know where to get the ball rolling, you know. We didn't know wh where do you go. How do you find another location that God wants you to go? And I began to pray and I began to think and I kept my heart open and my mind open. But I just didn't know where to go. I didn't know how to get started. I didn't want to make the wrong decision. So a friend called me and invited me to come be a guest speaker at his church. So I accepted it. And on my way to the church, I staring off and kind of space, driving, and uh, began to pray. I said, God, I don't, I don't know how to open a door. I don't want to just force my way anywhere. I, I want to know what you want me to do, and I, I want to make the right move, and I don't know how to get the process started. And, but I am so ready that the next door you open, I'll walk through it. And within 24 hours, a door to become pastor here, at Forest Park opened, and I took it. But I got to be honest with you, it was a struggle. I didn't want to come here, not, not because of you fine people. It was 20 years ago. It's not what I would have chosen. It wasn't what Lan and I wanted to do. And I wish, I wish, I wish, looking back, that I would have brought the leftovers of that paid house with me. But I kind of forgot about that. I, I sure could have used some of those leftovers in that season of discouragement and depression. I sat in my office about two weeks after I arrived here, and the office didn't have a desk in it. All my books were in boxes. I just had a table that was sitting in there, and I had a brown chair I pulled up to the table. And to be honest with you, I was discouraged. I was fearful that I had made a terrible mistake. I was worried about what would happen next. I had three small kids. And one of the most discouraging things is that the year before, the summer before in 2001, we had led a team to Ecuador with the Kinston Church. And we had more people on that team, almost as many people on that team as we had sometimes in a Sunday morning service here. And I was like, I just, I gave all that up. I gave up the mission trip. I gave up. The leadership I had there, I gave all that up. Now I'm here. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. I wish I'd have brought those leftovers with me. I wish I'd have written that down and, and I would have looked at it and let my heart get encouraged because I'm going to tell you, I needed it at that moment. So I'm sitting in my office and I'm staring out the window across the 
the field. Another time we didn't have an outreach center over there. We didn't have a parking lot out there. It was just grass, and it was kind of in the wintertime, and it was frosted with a little bit of snow on the ground. And I remember looking across that field at nothing, feeling the same thing in my heart that I saw out there, just cold and barrenness. The phone rang. Nobody else employed here. I guess I better answer the phone. So I answered it. And it was the pastor of one of the largest churches in our denomination, the largest in our state, Pastor Richard Dial. He was the one who began the outreach trip to Ecuador a few years earlier that we had actually partnered with and went with him. And he said, Scott, I didn't even know you moved. I said, yeah. I said, you know, we just moved here to Elizabeth City. And he said, God spoke to me and told me to give you a call. And I'd like to know if you'll come to our church and inspire our people to go to Ecuador in 2002. I said, yes. So I did. He, he probably still has no idea how much I needed that invitation. He, he has no idea how a 32-year-old pastor was sitting in his office discouraged and wondering if he made the worst decision of his life and thought he would probably never go back to Ecuador again. Because how in the world am I going to get a small church to get excited about going all the way to South America? He had no idea what was in my heart. He had no idea the storm that was raging inside of me and I was wondering if the ship was going to go down. He had no idea that I needed that phone call and I needed that invitation to remind me that no matter where I am and no matter what I'm doing and no matter how discouraged I am, God knows where I am. He knows how to get through to me. I returned here after that weekend away, and I cast a vision for Ecuador 2002, and 18 people signed up, and that was within the first chapter of our time here at Forest Park. I should have gathered up those leftovers. I should have gathered up those leftovers. But, you know, even after that day, that Sunday I went there and spoke, I just didn't think about it as much. I didn't, I didn't write it down. I should have, because in the coming years, over 20 years, I've needed it a lot. See, there were times when I had sheep and goats that I took care of. I look back at that house payment back in Wilmington, no big deal now. That was just sheep and goats. I look back even at that time when I first moved here and felt discouraged. And as I've grown and I've matured and as I've gotten older, I look back and I think it wasn't nearly as bad as it felt then. It was a small lion. But over 20 years, I've faced some bears. And there's been some times I've stood before a Goliath or two. What struggle are you going through right now? What, what's in front of you? What giant? What bear? What lion? better keep the leftovers because you're going to need them. Don't you let a miracle go by. Don't you let what God does for you be forgotten. Write it down. File it away. Get it out. Read it. Hold it up. And say, I know right now I am facing Goliath. But I remember when I had sheep and goats and God saw me through. I remember when I faced the lion. I remember when 
I faced the bear. I remember when 15,000 people were hungry and God came through. This storm is nothing. He will come through for me. Leftovers are there for a reason. Gather them. Keep them. Use them. Let's pray. Father, we forget your goodness. We forget that you see us through. We forget that you come through for us. We attribute it to luck. We attribute it to happenstance. We miss the miracle of the moment. God, would you open our eyes that we might see the miracles around us? Would you open our eyes that we might recognize when you come through and stuff baskets full of leftovers? Because there's going to come a day when we're hungry and we're going to need to eat. There's going to come a time when we're standing before a giant and we're going to need to remember back what you did for us when we were younger. There's going to be times that we're going to be in a storm and we're going to wonder where you are. And then we're going to remember, I remember when God did this for me. And we're going to reach down and grab that basket full of bread and fish and be reminded that you know where we are. You know what we need. And you know how to come through for us. Awaken us that we might see. Awaken us that we might acknowledge your presence in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful day, everybody. We'll see you.